Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on tax loss harvesting. This is a tax planning tool that can be used by anyone with investments to reduce taxes on capital gains and boost investment returns. Traditionally, the fourth quarter of every year, particularly December, is a time for investors, from your average Joes to your highly paid investment fund managers, to take stock of their investments and make some tweaks. One of those tweaks involves something called tax loss harvesting. This perfectly legal investment strategy can help reduce capital gains taxes without materially changing the economics of your portfolio. In today's episode, we explain what tax loss harvesting is, its potential benefit to investors, and some common pitfalls to watch out for if you want to engage in this strategy. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. So I'm super excited to be talking today about tax-efficient investment strategies. This is a topic that can help anyone planning for retirement make smarter investment decisions. And just to clarify for everyone, my retirement plan is to move into Lisa's home in Austin so that we can age (laughs) gracefully together. Um, Yeah, I will not be aging gracefully. So That's totally fine. I'm willing to age however you want as long as you're still building that in-law suite for me. I, I can neither uh, confirm nor deny that there may be an in-law suite in our future. But in any case, I love the idea of being an old curmudgeon with you in retirement. So I have a better idea. We'll be old curmudgeons now like we are. <laughs> we're, we're just aging. We're not getting nope. any nicer. No. Nope. But how about if this podcast takes off, we can buy our own uh, mansion on Lake Austin. Yes. 100% yes. You had me at mansion. (laughs) Um, But we're going to need to maximize our investment returns on our podcast profits in order to afford said mansion. And today's topic could help us do that. I guess actually the first thing we need to do is... um, make some podcast profits. What? I'm, I'm not embezzling the money. There is no money. What? We're not profitable? No. This is news to me. Once we have profits, we'll we'll invest them wisely and uh, we'll, we'll see you in, in a few years, Lake Austin, if, if everything goes well. That is all the motivation that I needed. So let's start talking <laughs> about, let's start talking about this topic. So first of all, we're going to have to call it something different because the word harvesting just makes like organs yes yes like that urban myth of like someone harvesting your organs in a bath so yeah i'm not i'm not a fan of this so what what can we say instead see now you've completely ruined it for me as well it's someone taking your kidney at mardi gras (laughs) i don't have a better phrase for you do you tax loss cultivating cultivating yes That's okay. Now we're into the, yes, medical marijuana field. Okay. Yes. All right. So the main idea behind cultivating your tax losses is to strategically recognize losses on investments that you can then use to offset your gains on other investments. And the whole reason that you would want to do this is to minimize your investment income and therefore minimize your tax liability for the year. The problem with this is that it sure sounds like we're starting to enter the territory of letting the uh, proverbial tax tail wag the dog here. I mean, isn't the whole point of investing that we don't want losses on our investments? Yes. I mean, the point is to try to get a gain, uh, someday recognize that gain, not pay taxes on it as much as you can, complain about paying too much taxes to our rich friends while we're flying them on our personal jet to our private 
island. Yes, all of that is what you would think logically. So the sort of ironic thing about cultivating your tax losses is that you are going to intentionally recognize a loss. And like you said, that sounds stupid from an economic perspective. You typically try to avoid that. But the key here is that we want to kind of get the best of both worlds. We want to get that loss for tax purposes without actually suffering a loss from an economic perspective. And I think this conversation is already ripe for an example. Ding, ding, ding. So let's say you own stock in a company and to use a completely random hypothetical, not at all tied to our personal lives name, let's say you invested in Blake Corporation. I did. I did make that investment. Uh, it was a big investment. It was large. It's a publicly traded company in our example, and you invested in it seven years ago. Seven uh, and three quarters, to be precise. Okay, seven and three quarters years ago, but already this company is acting almost like it's a teenager. I would say we're in our uh, early 20s right now. Okay, that's a that's a precocious company. It is. You purchased this hypothetical Blake Corporation when its stock was trading for $14. But Blake recently got into trouble with regulators. So let's think of a reason why maybe Blake's regulators were not so happy with Blake recently. There are many reasons why Blake upsets the regulators on a, on a fairly regular basis, if we're being honest. But to keep things simple, let's just say maybe Blake was not complying with the established standards of expected behavior of a company in Blake's position. I like it. Okay. And so when this became public, this not complying with established standards, Blake's stock price declined dramatically, all the way down to $10. You purchased at $14. It's now worth $10. You've suffered a loss of $4. And if you decide to cut and run and sell Blake, you would have to recognize that loss. Remember, in the US, we don't tax investment gains or losses that we have just on paper. We only tax them when we actually sell and recognize the gain or the loss at least not until a billionaire income tax or wealth tax gets passed. The thing is, I've spent a lot of time and care reviewing Blake's financial position, and I fully expect Blake Corporation is going to turn things around and the value is going to increase maybe to $21 someday. So despite the fact that Blake's price has dropped from where you purchased Blake, you still want to remain invested in Blake. I do. I'm in for the long haul. I could see holding my stock in Blake reasonably for 18 to 22 years. Mm. And like we said, I'm only seven and three quarters of the way, three quarters, three quarters of the way in. Uh, so as much as maybe sometimes I would like to cash out, I'm, I'm going to hold on. I'm not going to cash out. But hypothetically, if you had gains from other investments, wouldn't it be nice if you could offset those gains by going ahead and recognizing this current loss position that you have by selling Blake? So you sell Blake, let's say on a Friday, to recognize a $4 loss. But because I've promised myself to stay in it for the long haul, I buy Blake back again. On Monday, I repurchased those shares that I sold. I'm still invested in Blake, but now I have a nice $4 loss for tax purposes that I can use to offset my other investment gains. And that is pretty good tax planning, right? Or you're okay with that, right? Well, it would be pretty good tax planning if there weren't tax rules explicitly denying your ability to claim that loss. Darn it. Uh, you were invested in Blake Friday. Here you are again, invested in Blake again on Monday. Your position hasn't actually changed. No. And so the tax law is just going to ignore the fact that technically, yeah, you sold Blake for a short while. And so you don't get to recognize that $4 loss. It's going to be disallowed. That's right. I don't get to recognize it because what we have just described in this little example is what the tax code likes to call a wash sale. 
And at this point, in case my parents are listening, I have to give a shout out to my stepfather, Randy, who corrected my understanding of wash sales when I came home from college and tried to uh, talk to him about them. Way to go, Randy. Yeah, way to go, Randy, who does not have a college degree, but, you know, is self-taught in all things investment and set me straight when it came to wash sales about 20 years ago. So, Randy, if you're listening, thank you. So a wash sale is a sale of a capital asset like a stock for a loss, duh. But the taxpayer hasn't fundamentally changed their investment position in the stock. So back to our example, I sold and rebought the same stock pretty much more or less within one trading day. The tax code will look back 30 days and forward 30 days from the date of sale to decide whether I've actually substantively changed my investment position in an asset. And if they determine that I have not, they're going to disallow the loss. Wah, wah. I love that. <laughs> Except I kind of sound like the mom in Charlie Brown, yes. don't I? Yes. Wah, 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 wah. I'm, I'm imagining that's what we sound like to many of our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> that's fair. And our spouses. So our great idea of triggering a loss that we could use to offset other investment gains without changing our portfolio in the end, not so great. But the spirit of the idea, the spirit is a good one. Yes. If you could find a similar but not identical investment to purchase instead. See, the wash sale rules disallow a loss if a taxpayer purchases a, quote, substantially identical asset within 30 days in either direction of the date of the loss sale. And I am detecting some technical language. My technical language radar just went off. Ding, ding, ding. It did, because you said, quote, Mm. substantially identical. So tell us what happens if instead I buy a similar but not, quote, substantially identical asset. Then you're in luck. Yes. If there were another corporation out there that was pretty similar to Blake, but not identical, you could sell Blake recognize the $4 loss and reinvest not in Blake, but in that pretty similar corporation. Reinvesting in a different company puts you in a different economic position because there's a risk that this other company will perform differently. Once you've fundamentally altered your investment portfolio and the returns that you could expect from that, you can now recognize your loss. So if I want to successfully cultivate my tax losses, I'm here for you. I have to avoid the wash sale rules. I am with you so far. And we know what a wash sale is when we're talking about specific stocks. But me personally, this is tax nerd Lisa talking. I'm an index investor, meaning I'm not a stock picker. I don't pick individual stocks. And tax nerd B doesn't pick stocks at all. I pick football games. So maybe I should just be quiet for the rest of this episode. Who's winning this season so far? I'm up three games. That's impressive. It's big. And actually, speaking of Blake Corporation, she did the best two weeks ago. She bested what? Yes, yes. I can proudly say that Blake Corporation can name all 32 football teams and their mascots uh, unassisted by working. I think I'm done. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) You are a long way from done. Parenting complete. So I don't pick football games or individual stocks. Fair enough. I invest in funds that pools my money with that of lots of other investors. And then the fund goes out and buys a bunch of different stocks. Ideally, a broad set of stocks that represents some significant portion of the total stock market. 
So if I'm an index fund investor, how can I tell if one fund is Quotibark substantially identical to another fund? And this is where we enter into the gray area of the tax law. It can be a scary place, but relax, take a deep breath. We're going to walk you through it. So the regulations define, quote, substantially identical, as you guessed it, depending on the facts and circumstances of each case. The best indication we have of how to determine whether two assets are substantially identical actually doesn't even come from the statutes at all. It comes from case law, where the key factors are, one, performance, and two, overlapping assets. We're going to give you a rule of thumb here. And the rule of thumb coming out of the courts is that if two funds either generate returns that are so close to each other that they're within a fraction of a percent of each other, or the two funds have the same portfolio of assets, including weights on each each asset, and that overlap is substantial, then the two funds are going to be deemed substantially identical. On the more conservative side, uh, 70% overlap is kind of the max uh, that you would want to target if you were going to be switching in and out of, of one fund for another without producing a wash sale. And that's based on some publications by Morningstar and Barron's. Um, At the more aggressive end, Wealthfront actually published a white paper showing how they do their cultivation of tax losses. And some of those funds have an overlap of over 99%. Let's maybe be a little more conservative here and say that 70% is probably the safer threshold. So what if an individual invests in a fund like an exchange traded fund, an ETF or a mutual fund? How would we tell that individual to practically determine if the funds that they want to swap are substantially identical? Well, another rule of thumb here is that it's generally going to come down to whether the two funds track the same stock index. And right there, because we're focusing on stock index, we've already ruled out a number of possibilities that would create wash sales because ETFs are mutual funds that are actively managed, meaning there's a manager of the fund of somebody actually watching the market day in, day out, deciding what to buy, what to sell on any given day. With two different funds, with two different managers making these decisions, it's incredibly unlikely that those two people would come up with the same decisions over and over again, such that we have that high overlap that we need to trigger a wash sale. Where you really need to worry about potentially creating a wash sale is with passively managed stock index funds that are following the same stock index. Okay. And so for a dummy like me, what would be an example of a passively managed stock index fund? So it's going to be a fund that basically sets the rules out from the beginning that all it's going to do is try to mimic a particular index. And there are a lot of stock indexes out there. Um, One of the oldest is the Dow Jones. Um, S&P 500 is another popular one that a passively managed fund would follow. And again, the fact that it's passively managed means all it's trying to do is continue to keep up with whatever that index is, the same stocks and the same weights. The three largest providers of ETFs, which are Vanguard, BlackRock's iShares, and State Street Spider, all of these three offer ETFs that follow the S&P 500. And even though these funds are offered by these different issuers and they have different tickers, so on the surface, they might look like they're different investments, it doesn't mean that they are uh, significantly different from each other, that you can use them to cultivate these tax losses. That's exactly right. In order to make that determination as to whether they're substantially identical or not, we'd have to go back to those performance and asset overlap tests that we were talking about. 
if we see that overlap in assets or performance, then the two ETFs are going to be substantially identical, even though they have different tickers, even though they're managed by different companies. Now, moving from one fund to another, tracking the same index won't necessarily always result in a wash sale because there could be enough differences in the timing and the manner of rebalancing by the two different companies. And if you're going to be super aggressive, like that one um, article that you referred to, you could have as much as 99% overlap and still try to cultivate the losses. But a good rule of thumb from a more conservative standpoint is that moving from one passive index fund to another that tracks the same index is likely going to result in a wash sale and is something to avoid. Exactly. But you could move from an S&P 500 index fund to a, say, large cap index fund, which would be a fund that also is looking at some of the largest stocks in the market, um, but it would rank them by something different than market size, may rank them by revenue or earnings or something else. And so the composition of the fund is likely going to be sufficiently different that it wouldn't create a wash sale. But again, you'd kind of want to double check that going back to the performance and overlap tests. And you can apply the same sort of logic to S&P 500 dividend funds, which uses the same firms in the S&P 500 as its starting point, then whittles down the list of firms to invest in based on their dividend payments to shareholders. Or let's say you still like the idea of investing in the largest firms by market size, but you'd be willing to switch to a fund holding, say, the largest 1,000 firms, or you find one that tracks the largest 600 firms, just anything other than exactly the same 500 that you were invested in before, those would likely be different enough to not create a wash sale. So what we're trying to convey is that there are actually legitimate ways of cultivating these tax losses using similar, but not substantially identical funds without triggering a wash sale and without generally changing your investment approach. There is a way to eat your cake and have it too. You still get to invest in the set of firms that you're interested in. You still get to cultivate the tax loss. It's just that when you change to that new investment, it may be a slightly larger or smaller set of those firms you're interested in investing in. I stopped listening as soon as you said cake. Fair enough. So now it's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of tax loss harvesting. And I'm just going to jump the line because we've already addressed it and say wow. the bad the bad is the name. Yes. Yes. The harvesting. So turning to the good, some experts suggest that tax loss harvesting can boost your after-tax investment returns by one percentage point on average, which may not sound like a lot, but compounded over the long run, that can really add up. And these same experts that you're talking about found that the alpha or the outsized risk-adjusted return from tax loss harvesting is highest when markets are really volatile. And that makes sense because a volatile market is when you would expect to have the most losses to harvest. In periods of particularly high volatility, you can juice your after-tax returns by more than two percentage points. So that was the good. Now for more bad. And I think we've kind of alluded to this so far. There are lots of potential pitfalls of tax loss harvesting. And first up is your retirement accounts. Things like an individual retirement account or IRA or an employer-provided plan like a 401k, 403b, or thrift savings account. We've talked about it in an earlier episode, but what's so great about these types of accounts is that they offer some pretty substantial tax advantages either when you put the income into the fund or when you go to take withdrawals during retirement. 
But also another tax advantage they offer is that the investment income that is earned within these accounts doesn't actually get taxed on an annual basis. And that's our first pitfall right there. Because the gains and losses in these accounts aren't taxable in the years during which you're saving for retirement, you cannot use your investments in these accounts to tax loss harvest. So don't go trying to sell investments in your 401k at a loss for a tax benefit because that isn't a taxable loss to begin with. It's not going to help you. Yeah, it's not going to help you and it can actually hurt you a little. Here's the kicker. Even though the tax code doesn't usually look at trades you make in these retirement accounts for inclusion in your taxable income, these trades can be used against you for wash sale purposes. Is this even worth it? This sounds like a lot of work. Well, 2% extra return. Okay. That compounds over 30 years. You're getting that private island or that house on Lake Austin. All right. Fair point. If this sounds complicated, it is, sadly. And the point here that we're trying to make as the conservative ladies that we are is that you have to be really careful about what transactions you're making in your retirement accounts when trying to cultivate these tax losses. And keep in mind that new contributions to these retirement accounts, which typically occur every time you get paid in the case of employer-sponsored accounts, are usually used to make purchases right away. So you have trades going on in those accounts, whether you want them to be or not. And so this is where it it gets ugly, I'm sorry to say, because some investment advisors out there, they say, hey, come invest with us and we'll do the tax loss harvesting for you. They're going to charge relatively low fees, usually something on the order of 30 to 70 basis points. But in return, they'll do all the hard stuff for you. They'll invest you in a balanced portfolio based on your risk profile and preferences. They'll rebalance that portfolio for you periodically, which is a really important part of maintaining an investment strategy, and they'll do the tax loss harvesting for you. And that sounds great, but the problem is that you can typically only outsource your regular non-retirement investment accounts to one of these so-called robo-advisors. Your employer-sponsored retirement accounts, like your 401k, have to stay with whatever plan administrator your employer selected, which is typically not the same as the robo-advisor that you chose. But if the robo-advisor can't see all of your investments and your trades, they may be making wash sales for you left and right, not because they're jerks, but just because they don't know what's going on in your other accounts. The bottom line is that although tax loss harvesting can really boost your tax-efficient investment returns, it's a sophisticated strategy that shouldn't be undertaken lightly. And I'm proud of you for calling it harvesting here at the end of the episode. I'm trying to be a grown-up. You've come a long way. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa Deesburn. And I'm Bridget Stomper. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.